This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was still morning, but the Texas sun was already beating down on the parking lot as the Friends of Justice slipped between rows of cars, stacks of flyers in hand. They had a mission on that hot summer day in 2000. The group formed in response to the arrests of 46 alleged cocaine dealers the previous year in Tulia, Texas. Convinced they were wrongfully accused, members of the Friends of Justice spread across church parking lots, tucking photocopies of a newspaper article under their neighbors' windshield wipers. The piece they were distributing was published that June in the Texas Observer. Journalist Nate Blakesley had found something alarming as he researched the infamous Tulia drug busts, all 46 convictions were based on the word of just one man, undercover narcotics agent Tom Coleman. And from what Blakesley uncovered in Coleman's background, he had reason to believe that the officer's judgment could not be trusted. And the expose came right in the nick of time. The trial of 24-year-old Kareem White was about to begin. As a predominantly white congregation left their Tulia church that morning, they found a hundred or more photocopies of Blakesley's article slipped under their windshield wipers, but they scanned the paper in disgust. In their minds, the article was nothing but a slanderous hit piece, dragging Tom Coleman's name through the mud and painting their beloved town as backward and racist. Those 46 drug dealers were guilty. They threw the papers in the trash, where they belonged. The people of Tulia were going to stand up for Tom Coleman and for their city. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we covered the 1999 drug bust of 46 alleged cocaine dealers in the small town of Tulia, Texas. We examined the mass arrests and the series of trials in which most of the defendants pleaded guilty to avoid long sentences. This week, we're discussing the 2000 trial of Kareem White, a 24-year-old man facing decades in prison, who refused to take a plea deal, insisting he was innocent. We'll talk about the obstacles Kareem and his counsel encountered, the aftermath of his case, and how the tables ultimately turned on the man responsible. Terry McEachern, the district attorney for Swisher County, was worried his jury pool was tainted. He had tried and convicted seven Tulia defendants using the same kind of evidence he had against 24-year-old Kareem White. But back then, he'd managed to keep Tom Coleman's past out of the proceedings. Now, thanks to the Texas Observer article, Coleman's previous arrest for theft was known by virtually everyone in town. And with all this new ammunition, McEachern wasn't looking forward to putting him on the stand again. McEachern's only hope was to avoid a trial altogether. So that summer, he offered Kareem White a plea deal, but Kareem refused to take it. He was maintaining his innocence, no matter the cost. So, with no other choices left, the trial of Kareem White was scheduled for court. Kareem's attorney, Dwight McDonald, was unlike many of the other Tulia lawyers. He was a young man in his 30s, but what he lacked in trial experience, he made up for in thoroughness. McDonald spent weeks poring over the details of Kareem White's case, and after meeting with Kareem himself, McDonald was certain he was telling the truth. Kareem was innocent. So McDonald reached out to DA McEachern with an offer. McDonald proposed that Kareem take a polygraph, though he insisted on a few conditions. One was that McDonald was present at the time of the test. The second was that Kareem would only be asked if he sold powdered cocaine. No questions about other drugs or drug use would be permitted. And the third was that if Kareem passed, Tom Coleman would also have to take a lie detector test. McEachern agreed to all of the conditions. McDonald was almost shocked. He'd expected a fight or at least a negotiation, but perhaps he should have been suspicious. One day, while Kareem was in jail, the guard told him it was time to go. Kareem didn't know what was going on, but in the year he was locked up waiting for his trial, he grew used to the sometimes unpredictable schedule of hearings and visits. He followed in handcuffs to a waiting car. After over an hour of driving, they pulled up at the jail in the nearby town of Plainview, Texas. There, Kareem finally learned the trip's purpose. It was time for his polygraph. 
Once inside the building, Kareem frantically looked around for his attorney. He wasn't there. When Kareem asked to call him, he was told simply that McDonald had already agreed to the test. Without his attorney present, the polygraph examiner began asking Kareem preliminary questions before wiring him up. One of the first, had Kareem ever sold any type of drugs? Kareem's heart pounded in his ears. The honest answer was yes, he had sold narcotics in the past, but he didn't know if he should admit that to the police. So without McDonald there to ask, Kareem had to make a quick decision. He opted for the truth. He admitted he had sold drugs before. The examiner jotted down the answer and began wiring Kareem for the actual polygraph. But before he was finished, an officer burst into the room. They needed to stop the test. McDonald had found out about the polygraph and ordered they cease speaking with Kareem immediately. But the police had what they wanted. Kareem White was now an admitted drug dealer. McDonald tried to get the entire case thrown out based on this dirty trick. At the very least, he wanted Kareem's statement excluded. He was unsuccessful on both fronts. But McDonald wasn't discouraged. He had something none of the other defense attorneys had, information on Tom Coleman's past. The only question was, would he be able to use it? In previous Tulia trials, Judge Ed Self had ruled against every attempt to discuss Coleman's history. But a new judge presided over Kareem White's case, Judge Jack Miller. Before trial, however, Judge Miller ruled in favor of the prosecution. Coleman's past would be excluded from the proceedings. But he declared one vital caveat. The defense was allowed to present witnesses who could speak to Coleman's credibility. And McDonald had an entire list of people willing to testify that Tom Coleman was a liar and a thief. The trial of 24-year-old Kareem White began in early September of 2000. That morning, the Friends of Justice and the families of the Tulia defendants crowded the courtroom gallery. They shook hands and spoke in hushed tones, watching the row of reporters that occupied the front bench. People were finally paying attention. District Attorney Terry McEachern ignored the journalists as he presented his opening statement. By now, it was a familiar routine. He went through his argument and direct examinations, just like he had for the last seven trials. But perhaps he shouldn't have been so comfortable, because unlike the other defendants' attorneys, Dwight McDonald had a plan of attack. On his cross-examination of Tom Coleman, McDonald asked Judge Miller for a bill of exception. This bill would allow him to question Coleman about his theft charge, but without the jury present. This would mean that the testimony wouldn't affect the outcome of the trial, but it made the record for future appeals. Judge Miller granted McDonald the request. As the jury filed out, Tom Coleman, now in his early 40s, shifted in his chair. He knew what was coming. 
McDonald had already asked Coleman about the theft charge he received for stealing fuel while he served as an officer in neighboring Cochrane County. But once the jury had left the court, McDonald had a more specific question. When did Coleman learn he'd been charged? Coleman's response was calm and measured. He'd first found out about the charge on August 7, 1998, when Sheriff Stewart received the arrest warrant. Without missing a beat, McDonald pulled out a document and handed it to Coleman. He looked at the paper, confused. It was a waiver of arraignment with his signature stating that he understood the charges against him. Coleman was bewildered. He hadn't seen this paper in over two years. How did McDonald get this? McDonald asked Coleman to read the date next to his signature. It was marked May 30th, 1998, over two months before Coleman claimed he learned about the charges. Caught in a lie under oath, Coleman remained calm. He replied that he didn't know what a waiver of arraignment was, but this was a doubtful claim from a cop. Still, he insisted he didn't know about the charges until August. McDonald had gotten the testimony he wanted. Too bad the jury didn't hear it. Coleman was dismissed from the stand and the state rested its case. Once the jury returned, McDonald had the chance to present a defense no other lawyer in the Tulia cases had tried. He called four reputable witnesses to the stand, including a district attorney and Sheriff Ken Burke, who all testified that the state's star witness, Tom Coleman, was a liar. But before any of the witnesses could testify with stories to support their ill opinion of Coleman, Judge Miller stopped the testimony. Texas rules of evidence forbid bringing up a witness's actions to undermine their credibility unless they were convicted of a crime. Still, the defense's witnesses came off as credible and resolute, and McDonald felt confident as he rested his case. They had undermined Coleman's character enough that the jury could now find reasonable doubt. But the trial wasn't over. District Attorney Terry McEachern had prepared a rebuttal to blow the defense's case out of the water. Coming up, the jury hears about a different side of Tom Coleman that may seal their verdict. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In early September of 2000, 24-year-old Kareem White sat at the defense table at his own trial, feeling hopeful for the first time since his arrest. He had just watched his defense attorney, Dwight McDonald, bait officer Tom Coleman into lying under oath. Then, four witnesses testified to the former cop's questionable character. Kareem thought, 
maybe there was a chance they could win this case. But when District Attorney Terry McEachern called his rebuttal witness, Kareem's heart dropped. Texas Ranger Larry Gilbreth took the stand. Kareem had never heard of Gilbreth before, but he knew about the reputation of the Texas Rangers. The Rangers were the top law enforcement agency in the state, and one of their main tasks was to root out police corruption. If Tom Coleman were a crooked cop, no Texas Ranger would ever vouch for him. He told the jury that he'd met Coleman a few years prior, when Coleman was a deputy in Cochrane County. He swore that he knew Coleman to be an honest man. But what the jury didn't know was that Gilbreth was a family friend. Coleman's father was a former Texas Ranger. Gilbreth wasn't speaking out of truth as much as he was out of loyalty. After Gilbreth, McEachern called more witnesses, including two more Texas Rangers who were also friends of Coleman's father. With each testimony, the picture the defense had painted of Tom Coleman as a dirty cop was overwritten by the Rangers' glowing accounts of his good character. In the end, it took the jury less than two hours to convict Kareem White on all charges. Kareem's father stormed out of the courtroom. He had already watched two of his children be sent to prison as a result of the Tulia drug bust. He couldn't stomach it a third time. Judge Miller sentenced Kareem White to 60 years in prison for five counts of the delivery of powdered cocaine. As he was led out of the courtroom in handcuffs, his supporters sat in shock. There was no evidence against Kareem except the word of a cop who was caught lying on the stand. Yet Judge Miller had just given him six decades. Now, all eight defendants who turned down plea deals had received the maximum prison terms. Kareem's case was supposed to be different. They knew justice would not be found in Tulia. It was time to reach out to the rest of the country. Using all the connections they had, the Friends of Justice managed to get the story on the front page of both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times within a month of Kareem's conviction. But for the next year, none of the publicity did the convicted men and women any good. As journalists and pundits debated the war on drugs, 16 of the Tulia defendants spent their days in state prisons just trying to survive. That all changed in late October of 2001, 1,600 miles away in Washington, D.C. 27-year-old Vanita Gupta sat in a civil rights convention. Just a month before, the young attorney had landed her dream job with the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, where she was tasked with working on drug cases. At the conference, she sat mesmerized as she learned of 38 men and women convicted on drug charges in Tulia, Texas the previous summer. Gupta couldn't believe what she was hearing. The details of the arrest didn't make sense. How can a town of just 5,000 people have 46 active cocaine dealers? 
why were 85% of the people arrested black when they only represented 7% of the town's population? It was exactly the type of case she had been hired to work on. Within a week, Gupta made the first of many trips down to Tulia. She immediately contacted Jeff Blackburn, a local civil rights attorney who worked with some of the defendants. Gupta was confused as to why none of the convicted had filed appeals after their direct appeal. The truth was, none of them could afford it. And Blackburn warned Gupta it was a waste of time. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals had an appalling record for overturning convictions. But Gupta persisted. It wasn't the state they were after, she told Blackburn. It was the federal government. They had to exhaust all state appeals before moving up the ladder. The Texas appeal process may be a waste of time, but it was a necessary one. Blackburn conceded. She was right. He handed over all his files to Gupta. She then went to the Friends of Justice group and the Swisher County Courthouse to gather anything to do with the Tulia cases. Soon, she boarded a plane back to New York with a suitcase full of documents. After poring over the files, Gupta decided to focus on the first four men convicted, Joe Moore, Chris Jackson, Jason Williams, and Freddie Brookins Jr. Their window to appeal was closing. She had to act fast. For the next few months, Gupta and Blackburn worked day and night with a team of pro bono lawyers. They filed motions for all four men, claiming the state improperly withheld information about Coleman's credibility from the defense. In September of 2002, 11 months after Gupta learned of the Tulia convictions, she received a response. Against all odds, the Court of Criminal Appeals had agreed to consider their arguments. The team of lawyers was shocked. This was further than Jeff Blackburn had ever expected to get. But a harsh reality remained. Ed Self, the merciless judge of the original Tulia convictions, had to rule in their favor. The odds were stacked against them. Over the next few weeks, neither Judge Self nor DA Terry McEachern returned Vanita Gupta's phone calls or replied to any of the motions she had filed. Self wouldn't even tell her when he would be holding the hearing. But the one thing Gupta did receive was vital. An affidavit arrived from DA McEachern admitting that he knew about Tom Coleman's arrest before any of the defendants went to trial, something he previously denied. This admission bolstered Gupta's belief that the prosecution had withheld information from the defense, but it wouldn't do them any good if they couldn't get a hearing. The appellate team's only hope was to get Judge Self removed from the case. Asking for a judge to be replaced is a risky move. It's not only insulting to the judge, but if the request is unsuccessful, the defense risked further prejudicing Self against their case. But they'd never get a chance to fail. 
Within a week of Gupta filing the motion for recusal, Judge Self decided to step down from the Tulia cases voluntarily. He never gave a reason why. In his place, the Court of Criminal Appeals appointed Judge Ron Chapman to the case. Though registered as a Democrat, Judge Chapman was truly a centrist. He had a reputation for being unbiased, treating both the prosecution and defense equally. The entire defense team rejoiced. Two and a half years after the last Tulia trial, Kareem White's, they were finally going back to court. Then Jeff Blackburn called Vanita Gupta with even more good news. In a previous case, Judge Self agreed to test five random samples of the cocaine that Tom Coleman bought in Tulia. But due to delays, the results had only just come in one full year after the fact. The five samples ranged from 3% to 12% pure. Cocaine purchased on the street usually tests 50%. The drugs Coleman allegedly bought in Tulia were worthless. But there was more. Gupta realized that the low percentage impurity bolstered a rumor that had circulated early on in the case. It was said that Coleman had bought the cocaine in Amarillo, mixed it with baking soda, and repackaged it to look like he bought more than he did. Then he pocketed the money the force reimbursed him for the buys. By the time the March 2003 hearing rolled around, the Tulia defense team was armed and ready. Just as they did at Kareem White's trial nearly two years before, reporters filled the front row of the courtroom. Behind them sat the families of the Tulia defendants. The prosecution side, however, was nearly empty. Though 16 of the original 46 arrested remained in prison, the judge was only considering the cases of Joe Moore, Freddie Brookins Jr., Chris Jackson, and Jason Williams. But because the defense team swelled to 13 attorneys, there was no room for their clients. Instead, the four men sat in the jury box, just feet from the witness stand. Under strict orders from Vanita Gupta, they remained expressionless as they listened to the hearing. 35-year-old Mitch Zamoff, a member of the defense team, was permitted to speak first. As a former federal prosecutor, Zamoff had more trial experience than many much older attorneys. And when he spoke, people listened. The courtroom hushed as the spectators leaned forward in anticipation. If this hearing went well, their loved ones could be home soon. If it didn't, it could be years before their next chance. Zamoff cut to the chase. He told Judge Chapman that the state knew about Tom Coleman's prior theft charges, which called his credibility into question. Yet they provided none of this information to the defense. In each of the four trials in question, Zamoff pointed out that the state discussed Coleman's hiring, and in all cases, the juries were told his background check did not raise any red flags. Not only was this untrue, but Zamoff argued it was unfair for the prosecution to rely on a background check in court while denying the defense access. 
sitting at the prosecution table, State Attorney McEachern flushed when he heard his ethics called into question, but he wouldn't be the one to respond to the accusation. For posterity, he'd brought in a special prosecutor, John Nation, to assist in the hearing. McEachern's professional reputation was on the line. He needed to ensure no mistakes were made. Nation stood to address Judge Chapman. He reminded the court that Coleman's past was never admissible at trial. Texas case law was clear on this point. Specific instances of a witness's conduct cannot be used against them to undermine their credibility unless they were convicted of a crime. The prosecution had no duty to turn over anything that wouldn't be allowed into evidence. Nation then sat down. He was determined to keep his arguments restricted to the boundaries of the law. Tom Coleman's reputation as a person did not concern him. But the appellate team needed to make Judge Chapman care about Coleman's character. They called a parade of witnesses to undermine Coleman's credibility, including a district attorney and other police officers. They all painted Coleman as a violent man who threatened suspects and used racist slurs. The message was clear. Tom Coleman was not a man they trusted. This testimony queued up the most important question of the hearing. Did the state know about Coleman's troubled past before the trials began? To answer this, the appellate team called Lieutenant Mike Amos to the stand. Amos was the commander of the narcotics task force that hired and supervised Coleman during his post in Tulia. After Amos answered routine questions, Vanita Gupta handed him a page of notes. They were handwritten by another agent, Sergeant Massengill, summarizing the contents of Coleman's background check at the time of his hiring. Gupta asked Amos to read portions of it. Amos read aloud that Coleman's former sheriff called Coleman a discipline problem and a man who had possible mental problems. Yet, Gupta stated to the court, Amos hired him anyway. But Lieutenant Amos simply passed the buck. He testified that he pushed the information up the chain. It was Swisher County Sheriff Larry Stewart who made the final decision to hire Coleman. Coming up, Sheriff Larry Stewart is grilled by the defense and is forced to decide if he will stand by Tom Coleman. Now, back to the story. On Wednesday, March 18, 2003, the appeal hearings for convicted Tulia residents Joe Moore, Freddie Brookins Jr., Chris Jackson, and Jason Williams continued. 35-year-old appellate attorney Mitch Zamoff had proven that the narcotics task force responsible for hiring Tom Coleman had known about his questionable history, and the court had just discovered that Swisher County Sheriff Larry Stewart had proceeded to hire him anyway. When Zamoff questioned Sheriff Stewart, once again, he cut to the chase. Who decided to hire Tom Coleman? Stewart didn't hesitate with his answer. It was a joint decision between him and the Narcotics Task Force. 
the task force agreed to take on the background check while Stewart reviewed Coleman's references. He insisted that nothing uncovered caused him any concern. Stewart claimed he was aware that Coleman had old debts from his previous post in Cochrane County, but that Coleman was forthcoming about it in his interview. Confronting the sheriff about the details in Coleman's background check, it stated that Coleman had a discipline problem and possible mental problems. How could Sheriff Stewart have seen that report and still deny seeing any red flags? Zamoff's aggressive questioning wore on Stewart's patience, and it showed. The sheriff snapped that he didn't remember getting the background check. This was all Zamoff needed for now. Satisfied that he had shaken Stewart's confidence in front of the judge, he rested his case for the evening. The court was dismissed. The night off did Sheriff Stewart good. When he returned to the stand on March 19th, his calm facade had returned. When Zamoff resumed his cross-examination of Sheriff Stewart, he began by questioning Stewart about Tom Coleman's arrest. He wanted Stewart to tell the story himself, step by step. Stewart testified that when Tom Coleman's arrest warrant came over the teletype on Friday, August 7, 1998, he was shocked. He couldn't believe his star undercover agent was being accused of theft. So he and Lieutenant Amos decided to meet with Coleman in Amarillo the next Monday to confront him. At that meeting, Coleman appeared to be just as shocked as Stewart. Convinced of Coleman's sincerity, the sheriff testified that he and Coleman then drove back to Swisher County with Coleman's task force supervisor following behind. Once they crossed the county border, both cars pulled over alongside I-27. In his car, Stewart officially arrested Coleman with his supervisor as the witness. Then he released him on his own personal recognizance, meaning despite the Cochrane County's bond of $3,000, Coleman didn't have to pay a single cent. Once Stewart had finished recounting the arrest, Zamoff pulled out a copy of Tom Coleman's clean criminal record. He asked Stewart how he was able to create a blank slate for a man he just admitted arresting. This question pushed Stewart over the edge. His voice rose as he insisted it wasn't his fault. He mistakenly sent Coleman's fingerprint card to Cochrane County unsigned. And without the signature, Coleman's arrest couldn't be entered into the record. When the county realized the error, no one sent it back for Stewart to resolve. With Stewart now seething, Zamoff turned him over to the prosecution. He had just unraveled the sheriff's credibility. Now it was the state's turn to salvage what was left. Special Prosecutor John Nation did his best to save Stewart's testimony. He asked the sheriff if he would have fired Coleman if he'd had any indication Coleman was a crook. Stewart said he absolutely would have, even if it jeopardized the entire undercover operation. But it was too little too late. Stewart's recount of Coleman's arrest cast a long shadow over his credibility. 
After the flustered sheriff stepped off the stand, the court recessed for lunch. Then it was Tom Coleman's turn in the box. All 100 spectators fell into a hush as they strained to get a look at the man who put so many behind bars. Coleman, now in his mid-40s, had put on a few pounds in the years since he was undercover in Tulia. His long hair was now cropped short. Zamoff started by asking Coleman about his career before he came to Tulia. Coleman was on the offensive right out of the gate. He claimed he left his post at Pecos County after a fellow officer had an affair with his wife. When asked why he left Cochrane County, Coleman claimed corruption. The other deputies and even the sheriff were crooked. But Zamoff knew this was coming. In previous trials, Coleman had dodged questioning by claiming corruption on the part of other officers. So Zamoff kept pressing and Coleman kept deflecting. First, he recounted a story about the sheriff using county tires on his personal vehicle. Then he claimed he caught another deputy with a female inmate one night. Zamoff kept giving Coleman opportunities to explain all that went wrong in Cochrane County, and Coleman continued listing everyone's transgressions but his own. Neither his debts nor his theft of county gasoline were ever mentioned. Coleman's stream of consciousness answers to Zamoff's questions helped make him look defensive, like he had something to hide. Zamoff was happy to let Coleman dig his own grave, but it also meant they ran out of time. Knowing he only had one more day with Coleman, Zamoff had to make it count. After conferring with the other appellate lawyers, Zamoff decided he had to catch Coleman in a lie, and he knew exactly which one he'd use as bait. He was going to establish when Coleman actually learned about the charges against him. So the next day, when Coleman took the stand again, Mitch Zamoff started there. Like he had in previous trials, Coleman claimed he didn't know he was charged until Sheriff Stewart did in August 1998. But this time, he insisted the warrant was a frame job created to force him into paying $7,000 to Cochrane County under false pretenses. He swore he never stole gas from the county. Zamoff then asked Coleman when he knew Cochrane County was considering charges. Coleman once again said it wasn't until the warrant came through to Stewart's office in August 1998. If he knew before that, he would have told Sheriff Stewart right away. This was exactly what Zamoff needed. He whipped out a document from his files and handed it to Coleman. It was the waiver of arraignment Coleman signed in May of 1998, confirming his arrest. Because the waiver had come up in Kareem White's trial two and a half years before, Coleman knew exactly what it was. In that trial, he claimed he didn't know what the paper meant, but this time, Coleman insisted the document was blank when he signed it. He explained that his attorney wanted him to take care of it right away, so if charges were laid, he wouldn't have to break his undercover operation to sign it. 
the details must have been filled in later, and because his attorney never contacted him, he never knew the charges were made. Zamoff pointed out that Cochrane County filed in May, the same month Coleman hired his attorney. This seemed like convenient timing. Coleman rebuffed. He hired the attorney because he had a feeling Cochrane County was going to come after him. But Zamoff challenged him. It had been two years since Coleman left Cochrane County, and he'd never hired a lawyer before May. Did he really expect the court to believe it was just a coincidence? Coleman insisted that's exactly what it was. Zamoff reached for his stack of papers and pulled out two letters, one dated June 1st, 1998, and the other dated July 20th. Both of them were from Coleman's attorney to Coleman, and both referenced the theft charges. Coleman denied receiving either, claiming that his mail was going to his mother's house at the time. But Zamoff simply pointed to the last line of the July 20th letter. It said, please call me regarding this matter. He asked Coleman if he didn't call his attorney because he never received the note. Coleman replied, correct. Zamoff then handed Coleman an exhibit binder and asked him to identify what he saw. Coleman looked down, and for the first time since stepping on the stand, he was speechless. He was staring at a handwritten note from his attorney's receptionist. It showed a missed phone call from Tom Coleman on July 23rd, three days after his attorney mailed the letter. Coleman was rattled. He shifted in his seat for a moment before quickly explaining that he called his attorney but never made contact. Judge Chapman leaned back in his chair, sizing Coleman up. He ignored the growing murmur in the courtroom. Zamoff asked if Coleman expected the court to believe it was yet another coincidence that he called his attorney just days after the letter was sent. All Coleman could offer was that he had called to check in with his lawyer. He never saw the letter. No one, not even Judge Chapman, believed him. With Coleman's credibility in tatters, Zamoff shifted gears. He brought up the drugs that Jeff Blackburn had tested, which were found to be bunk. He asked Coleman if he knew the cocaine he purchased was significantly less pure than normal street drugs. At this point, Coleman seemed defeated. His replies became short and clipped. He answered that, yes, it was low quality. Zamoff then asked Coleman if he'd heard the rumor that Coleman cut the drugs with baking soda and kept the money he claimed went to a buy. Yes, he heard the rumors. Zamoff then pivoted the questioning to Coleman's use of racial slurs. Coleman admitted he'd used the slurs, though he denied he was a racist. Coleman's testimony had reached rock bottom, and there seemed to be no coming back. At this point, the trial broke for lunch, but when the journalists and spectators returned, the lawyers weren't there. They sat and waited for Judge Chapman. 
Eventually, they saw Vanita Gupta come in, speak to her clients, and leave again. What in the world was going on? Behind closed doors, the lawyers were hammering out a deal. Tom Coleman's abysmal performance had destroyed the state's case against all of the Tulia defendants, not just the four in the courtroom. It took over a week, but in the end, the county admitted they failed to turn over the information on Coleman's background and conceded that he was not a credible witness. They were going to drop all charges against all the Tulia defendants and set up a monetary settlement of $250,000 to be split among the wrongfully convicted. In exchange, the defendants agreed not to sue Swisher County for their wrongful convictions and imprisonments. It was almost everything the appellate team had hoped for, but their fight wasn't over. Judge Chapman, eager to release the innocent men and women from prison, quickly called the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals with news of the proposed settlement. But his enthusiasm was quickly replaced by shock. The criminal appeals court denied him permission to grant bond to any of the Tulia defendants. They were all to remain locked up until the court reviewed and approved the settlement, a process that could take months. But a couple of months later, in late May, the Texas legislature stepped in. Anxious to put the public scrutiny of Tulia behind them, they passed a bill authorizing Judge Chapman to grant bond to everyone still in prison due to Coleman's sting. The hearing was set for June 16, 2003, two and a half months after the county agreed to drop the charges. As the imprisoned Tulia defendants filed into the packed courtroom, their families tried to catch their eyes and wave. Unlike the solemn tone of the appellate hearing, this felt more like a celebration. But the crowds fell silent as Judge Ron Chapman stepped into the courtroom. As the hearing was called to order, Mitch Zamoff stood to address the court. In an impassioned speech, he stated that Tom Coleman was a cancer on the community and it was Judge Chapman's time to cure it. Chapman agreed. He turned to the 13 defendants sitting in the jury box. He encouraged them to go forward to live law-abiding lives. And with that, he said the words they had waited nearly three years to hear. You're free to go. The crowd broke out in applause and cheers as many tried to make their way over to the jury box to embrace their newly freed sons and daughters. On August 22, 2003, Texas Governor Rick Perry signed pardons for all of the defendants who were arrested based on Tom Coleman's investigation. This clemency extended to include those who pleaded guilty. Though the initial agreement limited the financial liability of Swisher County, the defendants sued the Narcotics Task Force and, in 2004, settled for $5 million. The settlement also required the task force to disband. 
but there was still one last wrong to right. In January 2005, Tom Coleman stood trial for perjury, and this time, no Texas Rangers came to his rescue. After a five-day trial, the jury found Coleman guilty and sentenced him to 10 years of probation. The convicted men and women of Tulia were furious. They had spent years behind bars because of Coleman's lies, while Coleman himself wouldn't spend a single day in jail. But as the verdict was read in court, Coleman's head dropped into his hands. This was a felony conviction, meaning he could never work in law enforcement again. His career had ended in disgrace. For Tom Coleman, the son of a Texas Ranger, that was a punishment he almost couldn't bear. The state of narcotics agencies across Texas didn't fare much better in the wake of the scandal. When the Tulia drug bust occurred in 1999, there were nearly 50 narcotics task forces in Texas, funded largely by grants. But this number sharply declined in the aftermath, and just 10 years later, there were none at all. Drug enforcement was back in the hands of local law enforcement. When Vanita Gupta arrived in Texas in November 2001, her goal was to exonerate the men and women caught up in the Tulia sting. Instead, she changed the way Texas handled drug enforcement forever. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Nate Blakesley's book, Tulia, Race, Cocaine, and Corruption in a Small Texas Town, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Vanessa Richardson.